Father, we look together at the words of your Son today. We're about to hear words of God spoken by the living Word of God, by your Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. And so, God, we pray that you will dash away all distractions and trivia. Indeed, everything else is trivial. And may God the Holy Spirit arrest our attention and strike home these words of the living word to the very depths of our hearts and souls. And may we be changed and transformed by the truth so vividly brought before us in them. And please help your servant to preach with power and fruitfulness and to your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Matthew 13, which is eight parables. And I just want to remind you about the shape of the parables because it really is very instructive to us. There are, as I say, eight parables. The first and the last parable frame two sets of three in the middle. The first is the parable of the soils, which sets the stage that during this period, this this, uh, mystery aspect of the kingdom program, God's word will be preached broadly and many will not respond fruitfully. Only one soil is depicted as responding fruitfully. Then in the last parable, the parable of the disciple instructed in the things of the kingdom, we see what happens in the life of those who do hear the word of God and they bring out of their treasure things old and new. So in between those two framing parables, there's a set of three and another set of three. And each of them begin and, and uh, end with similar parables. The first set of three begins with the parable of the wheat and the darnel, which grow up together but are separated at the end of the age. And then we have two parables of growth. All three of those are about growth. The growth of the wheat with the darnel, the growth of the mustard seed, the the growth or spread of the leaven. That's the first set of three in the middle. The second set of three is all about worth. It's all about worth. We have uh, the parables we'll look at today, two short parables, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price. Then the last is the parable of the dragnet, the last of that three. Very similar to the parable of the wheat and the darnel. And the wheat and the darnel, we have them growing together until the judgment at the end of the day, end of the age. In the dragnet, you have fish caught, good and worthless, and they're separated, which again speaks of the judgment at the end of the age. So today we look at two small parables, small but important and mighty out of all proportion to their size. The first one is only one verse long, and the second one is only two verses long. They're similar to each other, but they combine to say something that is very, very powerful and very, very important for us to get. I'll read my translation. The kingdom of the heavens is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and because of his joy, he goes away and sells all things, as many as he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a man who was a merchant seeking good pearls. And when he found one very valuable pearl, he went away and sold off all things, as many as he had, and bought it. So let's uh, dig in by looking first at each of the parables separately. Letter A then, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, or as I call it, the furtive fortune. F-U-R-T-I-V-E, the furtive fortune, verse 44. 
The kingdom of the heavens is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And because of his joy, he goes away and sells all things, as many as he has, and buys that field. So first, obviously, we consider the picture of the treasure hidden in the field. Now, you have to remember that in Jesus' day, there weren't stocks or bonds or banks like we have them, where people could put their valuables or their wealth. Wealth was things or it was property. And so to the degree that it was things, if they wanted to keep it safe, what they had to do basically was, was hide it. And they did that quite a bit, uh, given that many conquering nations went through this land Uh, they would have to hide these things from the invading hordes of the armies. So we could remember, for instance, how Achan did it in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, that he kept some of the spoil and he hid it in the ground in his tent. Where else could he put it? Couldn't put it in his lock box or his safety box. He hid it in the ground. Or you can think ahead in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 25, the parable of the talents. What did the lazy servant do with the talent that he was afraid that he'd lose, that he didn't want to dare invest because his master was so hard? What did he do with it? Dug a hole and he hid it in the ground, you see? So this is what people did. And Josephus, the Jewish historian of around this era, said that the Jews did this with a lot of treasures so that when the Romans came through in 70 AD, they were able to find a lot of hidden treasure, a lot of buried treasure, as a matter of fact. Uh, We have a number of illustrations of this uh, picture. Uh, I'll give you one physical illustration and a few spiritual ones. Um, There was a couple in California who was on a walk with their dog, and their dog was attracted by this old tin can. And this is a true story. And they picked up this can, and they found in it a bunch of gold coins. And they found that there were other cans, and they were all filled with gold coins, ancient gold coins. And the, the value of all these coins were millions of dollars. They weren't looking for it at all. It was their doggy. You imagine he got a really good bone that night. But this was a treasure they found that nobody else noticed how many people had walked past it. But their dog noticed it, and so they noticed it. But here's another kind of story. There was a man keeping sheep in Australia, isolated and in the back country, and he picked up a windblown piece, a page off of a weekly newspaper. And having nothing better to do, he started reading it, and he got caught into this one particular item. And he started reading it and found himself caught by it, read it through to the end. It was a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. If he'd known it was a sermon, he never would have started reading it. But he read it all the way through, and he was converted. He was brought into the family of God by that. Wasn't looking for it, but he found it. Another similar story, there was a a wife of an English uh, pub owner that is a a bar owner. And she got a a package sent her from Australia and it was wrapped in newspaper. And she got caught by something written on this wrapping and she started reading it. And she read it all the way through. It was a sermon by Spurgeon. And she was converted by that. Got eternal life and the forgiveness of her sins. And a membership in the family of God and the kingdom of heaven. And there was another man who had fled his family and the country. He was at at sea in a ship many miles away. His wife went to Pastor Spurgeon to to share her grief and uh, to pray together. And and he prayed with great confidence for this man, uh, Charles Spurgeon did. Well, on the ship, the man just happened on a sermon of Charles Spurgeon. 
and he read it and he was converted and came back to his family. So these are all examples of people coming on hidden treasure, treasure nobody else had noticed, but it was to their great riches and wealth that they found them. Now, this idea of hiding, I've said this a few times, and, and how is this treasure hidden? He's obviously talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. Well, God's truths are not obvious to the worldly mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that uh, these, the, the value of these things is hidden from the natural man. He doesn't see the things of the Spirit of God as having the value and power that they do. We just read that that generation... Uh, the truth was hidden from their eyes and they had no interest in seeing it. We read in Matthew chapter 11 that God hides these truths of the gospel from the reprobate and reveals them to his elect children. So to their eyes, they see nothing there. They walk right past it like the people walk past this field in the parable till this one man noticed what everybody else had not noticed. In fact, including, by the way, the owner, right? Because if he had known he had such treasure, he would have taken it out before selling the field. So it was just the man who saw it. And finally, the idea of selling uh, stands out. And notice how emphatically Jesus words it. I translated it very literally so you could see that. We could all see it. Because of his joy, he goes away and sells all things as many as he has. So to get this treasure that he has found, He's happy to. Did I make that up? No. It says because of his joy. He happily parts with everything he has so he can have that treasure. And I need to underline, we'll see why later, Lord willing, but when he parts with them all, they're not his anymore. He, he, he sells it off, but he's happy to do so because in parting with everything he had, he gets this. He gets this treasure that he's found. He parts with everything, but the treasure is his. Now, let's look at the second parable, the priceless pearl, letter B. The priceless pearl. <clears throat> Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a man who is a merchant seeking good pearls. And when he found one very valuable pearl, he went away and sold off all things, as many as he had, and bought it. So with this one we can actually do a little more briefly even. This is a merchant, presumably some kind of a wholesaler. The, the very word implies that he's off traveling, doing business. He's a wholesaler. He's in the market for a pearl. He's looking for good pearls, for valuable pearls, for pearls that he can resell. Now, pearls we don't value as much as they were valued in that day. I remember when I was a newspaper boy, uh, many decades ago, there was a contest you could, if you got a certain amount of uh, new subscriptions, you could get a, a pearl necklace to give to your mother. And so I won that and I got a, a necklace of pearls for my mother. I doubt that they were very valuable pearls, but I think she appreciated it. But in that society, pearls were, more, were regarded rather like we regard diamonds. In fact, they were more valuable than gold. So he was looking for something, for a precious gemstone and looking for pearls. And so what happens? Well, he finds one. He's diligently searching and he finds one, one very valuable pearl. Traditionally, we say a pearl beyond price. And so the same wording as the first man. He goes off and he sells everything whatsoever he had. 
but he did that to get this pearl, and he considered that he'd found a real find, the find of a lifetime, as had the first. So we've considered each of them. Now let's find the lessons of these parables by considering them together, Roman numeral two. And first, obviously, to understand this, we need to understand what is meant by the hidden treasure, what is meant by the pearl of great price. And that takes us to considering the heart of the kingdom, letter A, the heart of the kingdom. Now, several interpretations have been proposed, as you would expect, over the years for what these two objects represent. one very famous uh, scholar of uh, a couple of centuries ago, Trench, he said that they represented the Gentile church and the Jewish church. The hidden treasure was the Gentile church and the pearl was the Jewish church. And then come along another scholar named Fenton and he says, well, no, it's to the Jew first. So the hidden treasure is the Jewish church and the pearl beyond price is the Gentile church. And then along come other translators who say, uh, interpreters who say, no, the hidden treasure represents Israel because it's hidden in a field like, like Israel is in the land and the pearl represents the Gentiles. So there's three very different. One that's popular among our kind of um, believers uh, more recently has been argued for is the idea that, well, really the pearl is us and the treasure is us and the man and the merchant men are Jesus. And Jesus finds us and he sells everything he has dying on the cross so that he can make us his own. And you hear that and you think, oh, I kind of like that. That, that kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really fit. And let me tell you uh, why and how. Let's talk about what is the best fit. Remember that all of these parables have to do with the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Is the church the kingdom of heaven? No, it is not. The church is not the kingdom of heaven. Is the kingdom of heaven here? No, the kingdom of heaven is not here. It comes after the judgment at the end of the age that these parables talk about. This is not an age of the kingdom of heaven. This is an age of the preaching of the word, not received by most, but received by some whose eyes God opens. And so some, as we could say, see that treasure. Some find that pearl while all the others go past it and don't see the value in it. So uh, also, but what about this Jesus uh, picture, the idea that that he uh, found the treasure and gave all for it? Well, he didn't find us by accident, did he? But the first guy found the treasure by accident. He's just going, he's not looking for a treasure. He just sees this treasure in a field and sells what he has to get it. And so that's not like Jesus at all. But even more, was Jesus enriched by saving us? Did, 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 he, did he save us to benefit himself? Was it out of love for himself? And were we that valuable and precious that we made him richer by saving us? So that's not what I read. I, I read Paul saying that he was rich and by his poverty he made us rich. We aren't treasures. He's the treasure. He's the treasure. And finding him, we become rich, though we part for all to have him. You see, so it's far better to say, and this is what I say, that the the, the treasure and the pearl represent Jesus and everything that comes with knowing Jesus, which includes the kingdom of God. Because he is the heart of the kingdom of God. Jesus and the kingdom of God are inseparable. Just, just think this through. Why were the Jews 
disciplined and driven out of the land? Why did God judge the Jews? Did he, did he judge them because they rejected the kingdom of heaven or because they rejected Jesus? Because they rejected Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they rejected the kingdom of heaven. This is made very clear in, in Matthew uh, chapter 21, where Jesus talks about the cornerstone. Remember the, the psalm mentioning the cornerstone? The cornerstone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone they rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then the next thing he says is, therefore, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing its fruit. Why will the kingdom of heaven be taken away from them? Because they rejected the stone. And who's the stone? Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the stone. So the kingdom is rejected when they reject Jesus. And when does the kingdom come? When Jesus comes. It comes when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he brings the kingdom with him. So I believe that the treasure and the pearl, they're Jesus. They represent Jesus and everything that comes with knowing Jesus. And I'm going to try my very best to show you how that's true. But the next thing I want to look at, having looked at the heart of the kingdom with you, is to look at how both men hit the jackpot. Both men hit the jackpot. Both men find something rich and wonderful beyond their wildest dreams. Now, let's first talk about how they differ, what's different about them. And the first, as I've said, is that the first man is not said to have been looking for the treasure at all. He just finds it. Doesn't say he searched for it. And so who does that make you think of? Well, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul says the Gentiles are like that. The Gentiles weren't looking for God particularly, but God reached out and saved them in rejecting the lost in Israel and judging Israel. Who's a, who's, but who, on the other hand, is an Israelite who wasn't looking but found this treasure? Paul. Paul was not looking for Jesus, to say the least. He was looking to stamp out the name of Jesus, and yet by sovereign grace, God opened his eyes to Jesus and converted him and saved him. He was somebody not looking, but he found. So the first man was not said to be looking at all, but he found. But the second man, on the other hand, he was looking. That was his business. He was looking hard to find good pearls, but he found one pearl worth more than all of them. He was looking, he was looking hard, he was looking with focus, and he found. Who does that maybe make you think of in the book of Acts? Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, who's reading the prophecy of Isaiah, and just wondering, who is he talking about this, this despised and rejected man? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And the Holy Spirit sends Philip, and he tells him, oh, he's talking about Jesus. And he finds the pearl of great price. So, not, not looking or looking, all sorts find this treasure. Now let's talk secondly about how they match. Well, both find, both are said to find, they're expressly said to find. Uh, that's why I titled the sermon what I did, that uh, the man found the treasure hidden in the field and the merchant found one very valuable pearl. So they both find. That's what ties them together. And what else is uh, similar with both or identical? They sell everything whatsoever they have. What they find is worth everything they have, and they sell everything they have in order to have this. And so what other thing ties them together? 
And MacArthur pointed this out. They both do exactly what every financial advisor would say don't do. What what would any financial advisor say to do with your wealth? Starts with a D. Diversify, diversify. But what do they do? They do the exact opposite. They sell all their wealth so they can have one thing, one treasure, one pearl. Now, that's not just incidental. I'm pointing that out. That's very important. Everything else goes so they can have that one thing. It's worth more than everything they've accumulated in their entire lives, and they gladly, freely, and fully let it go so they can have that one thing. That's very important to get. That's how they're similar. So now let's talk about the priceless find, and this is going to be my real focus. And I just pray God help me because I I honestly feel like somebody who's uh, maybe been a an uneducated mechanic in a backwoods town whose, whose entire exposure to art consists of reading comic books, and now I'm called on to describe the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I am not equal. But I want with all my heart, and my heart is full, and I want with all my heart to try to set this out before you in a way that is powerful and compelling to you, and that you see what Jesus is saying to us here, and that this grips you like it's gripped me, or even hopefully, God willing, better. So let's lay down the the preface about this priceless find. Letter C, the preface about this priceless find. Uh, What makes something priceless and and precious? What would this be in life to most people? What would most people say that they find priceless or precious that they really, really want out of their lives? Most de- and we're going to just say decent people, not people who want to be the, key, the chief uh, drug runner or uh, child trafficker, but people we'd think of as being decent. What would they say they, they just want? Happiness, they'd say they want happiness. They'd say they, they want contentment. They want enough. They don't, they'd like to be rich. Rich is fine, but maybe not even that ambitious, just enough to eat and, and, and shelter and so forth, and uh, to, to feel like they've got meaning in life, that they've got purpose in life, uh, that they have love, that people, they have people who love them in their lives. And these are all the values that people have. I think most people would say that they have these values, and we certainly look at, wouldn't look at those and say that they're worthless, but the thing is, they're all groundless. What, what is happiness? And, and what's a good ground for happiness? And, and what does it mean to have a meaningful life? You'd have to know what life means to have a meaningful life. But to this person, what do all these things have in common? Two things. Well, three things, really. They all come from within me and my judgment and my feelings. And they all center on me my judgment and my feelings, and they all end at the grave. Now, when you just think about it, you realize, well, assuming the universe goes on for any length of time, there's a whole lot more time on the other side of my grave than there is on this side. So say I live 80, 90 years, say I make it to 100 years of age, and say the universe goes on for another thousand, million, billion years, well... The other side of that obituary is a whole lot longer than this side, isn't it? And yet, everything I'm thinking about is all about this side. It's all about this little tiny segment before the great yawning vastness of eternity. Well, you say, I don't believe in life beyond the grave. How do you know? Well, you're making a very big bet there, aren't you? But yes, I'm making a big bet because it feels right to me. It comes from within me, 
and it suits me. So I just assume that there's no life beyond the grave. And what else can you say about all these things that I've named? Well, they all have nothing to do with God. They, they all assume God out of the picture. Now, I bet if you said that to most people, they'd immediately say, oh, well, no, no, God's very important to me. It's really good to know that someone's got my back and that someone will listen anytime I want to pray and that someone, when I make mistakes, he forgives me and he helps me and guides me and gives me power to achieve what I want in life. But don't you see that's exactly the same as everything else? This notion of God comes from in here. And it all ends on here, making me happy, giving me peace. And, and this God, I use the, the word, but it's really something I've created to serve me. So this picture of God is really as a wingman, isn't it? He, he's here to serve me. He's really all about helping me get what I want, which again is groundless and anchorless. It comes from inside of me and it ends on me and it ends at the grave. Now, that's what most people are looking for. Well, what's wrong with all that? It's all built on an assumption. Suppose that assumption is wrong. Suppose there is a God who is the actual center of the universe. Now, this, of course, is the biblical view. In the beginning, God created the universe. So the universe exists because of him, his idea, his craftsmanship, his to define, it's all around him. It's not all around us. I'm one of those things he made. He's the center. So let's continue supposing. Then supposing then we start thinking from him and what he says. If only we could know what God considers valuable. Good news if you want to know that. Great news. We can. We can look at what God says if we just turn to uh, Matthew and we're under number two now because this is leading us to see how Jesus is priceless. When we start thinking about that, may, what if the universe is not as we've always assumed it is? What if it doesn't center around us? What if it centers around a God who is transcendent, self-existent, self-defined, and who sets the terms? So now we look, and we're about to see how Jesus is priceless, when we first see how Jesus shows our real need and our real problem in Matthew chapter 22. Turn there with me. Matthew 22. I don't get the flipping pages that pastors of old got, because now you you can tap on your screens. But uh, I'll just trust you turning there. Matthew chapter 22, and verses 36 through 38. Uh, So uh, uh, an expert in the law comes up and he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Of all the hundreds of laws in the law of Moses, what's the great one? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the great and foremost commandment. So there Jesus says this is the most important thing. And you have to understand when he says the Lord your God, he's not talking about God whoever you conceive him to be. He's talking about the God revealed in Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who he came to reveal, that God. Whether we've ever conceived of him or not, that's the God he says, and we're to love him with everything we've got. That's the great and foremost commandment. So here's the most important thing. So here's the problem with that. We never do that. We don't ever do that. And we never have in all our lives done that. Loved this God... Not our own wish fulfillment ideas. 
with everything we have. We have never put together two seconds in a row where everything we have is given to loving God. Now that, that creates a real problem, you see. Where does that leave me? If this is what I'm here for, and I never do this, and there is such a God who has a will, who owns everything, including me, who has all power, and he said, here's the thing you must do, and I never do it, where does that put me? In deep trouble. It makes me alienated from him, right? Who is the source and creator of all things. It makes me guilty, and it makes me hopeless. How does it make me hopeless? Well, because I'm not going to find within myself any means for making up for 10, 20, 30, 40 years of not doing that, let alone the means for spending the rest of my life doing that. I have nothing in myself to deal with this guilt that I have before this inescapable, self-existent, infinite, personal creator God. I've got nothing. But thank God, by sheer grace, love, and mercy, God has made a provision. And I want to talk about that mainly in terms of Matthew's gospel. Turn to the first verse of Matthew's gospel. And you'll really see it all in nutshell form here. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, let's just start there. Who's this book about? It's about Jesus Christ. Let's focus first on the word Christ. Christ, you know, means anointed. It's an image taken from the pages of the Old Testament. People in three offices were anointed as part of inaugurating them, installing them in those offices. What's one of those offices? The prophet, the office of prophet. Now, what is the central idea of a prophet in the Bible? Not the secular or churchy idea, but the actual biblical teaching of a prophet. What is a prophet? He is someone who receives and speaks the word of God. So he reveals God verbally. God reveals himself through that prophet. He speaks the words of God. Now, Jesus is the prophet. Being the Christ, he's the ultimate prophet. Uh, foretold in, I, in De uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, the prophet like Moses, who we must listen to or God will require it of us. And it, it, does Jesus fulfill that uh, office? Well, yes, he does. Look at Matthew eleven twenty-seven, And this, because time is limited, some of these I'll just tell you, but Matthew eleven twenty-seven, I remind you, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Uh, so if we want to know this great God, who we are learning is the center of the universe, unlike us, well, Jesus reveals him. In fact, only Jesus reveals him. In fact, Jesus only reveals him to those he wills to reveal him to. He picks who finds the treasure, if you will. He picks what merchants find the pearl. And he reveals the Father to them. How is he fit to do that? Just note these down, but I'll tell you about them. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus can reveal God to us perfectly because he is God himself. But how does that fit him to reveal him to us? John 1:14, And the word became flesh, a human being, and dwelt among us. And John 1, 18, 
No one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So you you see Jesus himself in essence and nature, God takes on human nature as well and is able to reveal God to us perfectly. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at the first two and a half verses. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 3a, if you want to write it right. Now God having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So in one masterful sweep, he says, yes, all of the revelation of all the prophets who came before is all valuable because that's all God speaking. However, the climax of revelation comes where? In the Son. He speaks finally in the Son. All this leads up to that revelation in the Son. And how is the Son fit to do this? Oh, look at this preciousness in verses 2 and 3. He's heir of all things. God made all things through him. He's the exact representation of his essence. And he's the radiance of his glory. So precious is this one that he, as the perfect, ultimate, final prophet, reveals God fully and he reveals God Finally, so he is the prophet, and we can know God through knowing Jesus. What else is uh, anointed? What other prophet, uh, office does this point to? Office of king, the office of king. Kings had oils, oil poured on their head. When David was chosen by Samuel to be uh, king, he poured oil on David's head. So is Jesus the king? Well, yes, you could turn back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. We started off with Matthew 1, 1, and now we just get to Matthew 2, 2. And here, these Gentiles, these Magi come, and they ask what question? Where is him who was born king of the Jews? The Gentiles knew it before the Jews recognized it. But he was born king of the Jews. And look to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul had said... That Jesus existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. But now verses 9 through 11, therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We saw that in uh, Revelation 5, didn't we, at the start of the service. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ah, yes, he has a name above every name. So is he king? He's beyond king. He's king and beyond. He has the name above every name. And Revelation 19.16 says that he, when he comes again, He comes riding a white horse, and he has written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, there are kings. Yes, there are lords. But above them all is Jesus. Is he a treasure? Is he precious and priceless? Well, yes, he is. He's the perfect prophet who reveals God. He's the perfect king who reigns for God. So if we're looking to know God, who we've ignored all our lives, well, he's the one who can show us God. 
And if we're looking to line up our lives with God's authority, well, he's the king who exercises God's authority. But then again, this is bad news because the truth of the matter is we've either been indifferent and lazy about who God is, paid no attention at all, or whether actively or passively by disinterest and laziness, we've rejected his rule in our lives. We, we haven't submitted to his rule as king. We haven't followed his revelation as God's perfect prophet. So that leaves us guilty. That leaves us burdened. That leaves us dead and condemned under sins from which we have no ability to deliver ourselves. Wretched people are we who will deliver us. Well, there's a third office who's anointed, who Messiah is. He is the perfect prophet. He is God's king, but what else is he? He's a priest. And what does a priest do? Makes offerings for sin. Makes offerings for sin. But in the Old Testament, these offerings were all pictorial. They were, they were effective because of the faith of the person who trusted God's word and because ultimately Christ would die for such. But in themselves, they're simply pictures. Does Jesus perform the office of priest? Does, does he make atonement for sin? We'll look at Matthew chapter 1. We looked at 1 1. We looked at 2 2. Now we're going to look at 1 2 1. <laughs> Matthew 1 21. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, knowing how people get pregnant, finding that Mary was pregnant and knowing it wasn't by him, the only thing he can think to do is divorce her. He, he, he doesn't know what to do because it just doesn't fit her character at all, but he's not stupid. And so he's fixing to divorce her privately, but an angel comes and tells him, no, 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 don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, what? Save his people from their sins. What priests could only do in a pictorial way, Jesus would actually do. And you see, that's why he's named Jesus. You notice in 1 1, I skipped from Jesus to Christ. Now I'm going to come back to Jesus. He's called Jesus Christ. The Christ tells us that he's prophet, priest, and king. The Jesus, you could say, focuses on the priestly aspect. Why? Well, what does the, the, the Hebrew form, Yeshua, what does that mean? Salvation. His name means salvation. Yeshua, salvation. That's his name. And not just because it sounded nice or was popular, but because that's what he would do. He would save his people from their sins. Is that precious? Is that valuable? Well, it depends. Do you feel the weight of your sins at all? Well, if he's not precious, then I only can conclude you just don't feel yourself. I don't feel myself to be much of a sinner. But I tell you, to someone who knows even a little bit of the weight of his sin and his guilt before God and the horrible wrath of God, to hear that there's someone who's a savior who actually can save his people from their sins, is that good news? I'd like to know what's better. Is that precious? Is that valuable? I'd like to know what's more valuable or precious. But he will save his people from his sins. So just think, every time Mary called him to dinner, she was preaching the gospel. Salvation, salvation, she'd call, and Jesus would come. That was his name. He would save his people from their sins. How? Matthew 20, 28. 
Matthew 20, 28. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his soul as a ransom price for many. And by what means would he give his soul as a ransom price? Matthew 26, 28. By the blood of the new covenant. Leviticus 17 says that the blood makes atonement. Jesus says he's making atonement. Jesus says he's going to make it by the shedding of his blood. So now let's turn back to Hebrews one more time and see this even more fully. Back to Hebrews chapter 1. We stopped at verse 3a. Now let's look at verse 3b and more in Hebrews. So do turn there. So I I stopped at verse 1 halfway through. But then after the semicolon, he writes, who having accomplished cleansing for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having accomplished, having done cleansing for sins. Not having depicted cleansing for sins. Not having hypothetically half accomplished, but having actually accomplished the cleansing of the sins of all his people. He sat down. And this sit down, you, you, you may just think, well, that's something that's not a big deal. Oh, it's actually a big, big deal for a priest to sit down. I'll show you that in a moment. But first, let's stop at chapter 7 and read a little bit more about Christ's priestly work. Chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Having trouble turning these little thin pages with my big sausagey fingers. There we go. 7:26 and 27 for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest or even more literally for such a high priest was fitting for us. Now we could talk about that for hours how perfectly Jesus fits our deepest and most real needs. He was fitting for us. Why? What kind of high priest? Holy, no sin in him, utterly set apart to God. Innocent undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins? They all had to make sacrifice for their sins, but Jesus did not. He goes on to say, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Yes, Jesus did not come to bring bulls and goats. Jesus offered to bring himself. His own perfect infinitely valuable self so as to save his people from their sin. And look at chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Uh, You could make ashes to have an instant sin offering in Israel for people who are defiled by a corpse. But he says, but if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. There's the whole trinity. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Actually cleanse, not in figure, not in picture, not in promise alone, but in actual fact, wash my cleanse, my filthy conscience clean from sin so that now I can serve the true and living God. And how does he do this? Chapter 10, tempting to read the whole chapter, but we'll just look at verses 11 through 14, and we'll see what a big deal it is that he sat down. Verse 11, and every priest does what? Stands. How often? Daily. Doing what? 
ministering and offering how often? Time after time, what? The same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. A study in futility. Okay, your sins are cleansed. See you next week. Yep, see you next week. Okay, the nation's sins are cleansed. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. See you next year. See you next year. Never take away sins. But he, having offered how much? One sacrifice. How effective? For what object? For sins. How effective? For all time. What then? Sat down at the right hand of God. Why, why would he sit down? Did he tire of his work? Was he bored with it? Why could he sit down? Because he was finished. Because the work was accomplished. One sacrifice of his infinitely precious self and sins atoned for. Waiting for that time until his enemies be put as a, foot, put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then finally, Colossians chapter 1. Finally, in this connection, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, says that in saving us, he rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. That's what God the Father did. Rescued us from Satan's kingdom, transferred us to Christ's kingdom. So you see how this all ties in as a mystery of the kingdom. Because by the offering of himself and by his atoning his people, he makes them citizens of the kingdom of God. Or, to look at it from our angle, when I repent and I believe in Jesus, I'm saved from the dark kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. It is by Jesus I become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And look at verse 22. He reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. See, this was my big problem. This was your big problem. This is everybody's big problem that there is an infinite personal God who has laws which I have violated, whom I've ignored, against whom I've rebelled. I've so rebelled against my life that I didn't even have to think about it. Remember what I described earlier, what everybody wants? We don't come at that through philosophical reflection. We're just born expecting that, well, everything does revolve around us and expecting life to serve us. And if there's a God, Him to serve us. We just, that's just the way we're wired. We don't think any other way. And once it comes to our minds that there is such a God, the terrifying reality that I stand condemned before Him, but then I find out that there is one who has died for sinners, who's able to save sinners from their sins and reconcile them to God so that they can be citizens of His kingdom, members of His family, and serve Him with their lives. This is Jesus. Would you say He's valuable? Would you say he's precious? Would you say he's the find of a lifetime and much, much more? He's who we need most, and he does all this for us. He alone reveals God to us and reconciles us to God so we can know God and begin learning to love God. This is who Jesus is to us. And that's his work mainly. I'm focusing mainly on his work. But let's just say a few words about the kind of Savior he is and why he did this. The, the person in these parables is out for profit. Obviously, that didn't motivate Jesus. I, I can tell you certainly in taking my case on, it wasn't to his profit. <laughs> the mercy and the gain is all on my side. His side is all mercy and grace. I can tell you that with all my heart. What motivated him to do this? Why did he do such, make such sacrifice and do so much and be so much for his people? 
Revelation 1.5. To him who loved us and loosed us from our sins in his blood. Revelation 1.5. Colossians, uh, Galatians 2.20. Paul speaks of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Because when an infinite person loves, if he loves 50 billion people, he loves each of them with all his love. And so Paul can say, yes, as he says in Ephesians 5, he loved the church and gave himself up for the church. But he can also say in Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself up for me. Why did he do it? Love. He did it out of love. Hebrews 2.17 and 18. What kind of a high priest is he? We find out in Hebrews 2.17 and 18. Sorry. People look. See if that, oh, that works a little bit. So Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted. Merciful, faithful, eager to be able to come to the help of his tempted people. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. The Greek word is sympathese, sympathesi, to suffer with, to feel pain with our weaknesses. He's not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He was a faithful, merciful, sympathetic high priest who did what he did because he loved us. Because he loved us. Like of John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And so does he still. That's why he can save us to the end. Because he loves us to the end. Because he's an infinite person. And his love knows no edges and no uh, lengths for those he's chosen. And so we read finally in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor any other created thing basically will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see all that? So is, is Christ not precious? Is he not a treasure? Is he not a, a pearl beyond price? Well, God says, yes, he is. All the saints in glory say, yes, he is. We saw that at the start of the service. All the angels say, yes, he is that. My question is, is he precious like that to you? Is he precious like that to me? I ask myself. Well, how does that preciousness show itself? Uh, one more thing to talk about in both of these parables, their sacrifice, letter D, their sacrifice. Now, I, I put it in quotation marks for a reason. But let me first get something that should be obvious out of the way. If somebody were to say, oh, look, they sold everything and bought this, so we, we have to earn Jesus, we have to earn salvation, we have to buy salvation. 
Uh, no, that's not the point of it all. We, we can't earn Jesus. We can't earn salvation. It's all by grace, Paul says. Being saved by grace through faith, that's all a gift of God. He says it, all the apostles say it over and over again. It's a gift. God gives it to us. It, it, it cannot be earned. It would insult God to imply that we can earn it. So, so what is this talking about, this selling all things whatsoever they had to get this to get this priceless treasure. Well, let me ask you a question first. Three questions. Here's the first question. Would either of them have said they made a sacrifice? Or would they have both said they made a killing (laughs) in financial terms? Really, would they say they made a sacrifice? Or would they say they made a killing? They'd say they made a killing. Well, look at the express wording of the first man. Why did he go away and sell all things they had? Look, Look at the translation, verse 44. What motivated him to go away and sell everything? With joy. With joy. He did it gladly. He did it happily. He couldn't believe his luck, to use common language, that he'd found this. Yes, he would gladly part with everything else to have that. So neither, and obviously the businessman, well, this is what he was looking for. He found a pearl beyond anything he thought he could find. So yeah, it was worth getting. Lending. He, the, the thought is not, oh, all these dear things I'm parting with. The, the thought is, oh, look what I've found. If I have to let go of all that to have this, that's a bargain. That's a killing. So would either have said he made a sacrifice? No, he wouldn't have said so. So that's why I put it in quotation marks. And what was the motivation in making this sacrifice? Well, obviously we're told in the first case it was joy. And in the second case, he found exactly what he was looking for, even better. He was looking for good pearls, plural. He found one pearl worth more than a bunch of pearls, than all the pearls. And they both found something that was worth more than everything they had. Giving up all that was was a bargain if they could have this. That was the motivation. So thirdly and finally, what was the sacrifice they made? Because... Both times, Jesus says, they sold everything whatsoever they had. Well, first let me note that the first man finds treasure hidden, and then he hides it. And that that has to be meant to teach us something. And I think in the context of Matthew's gospel, it it reminds us that Satan would would love to take it away from us. He'd love to stop us on our way to it. If we're starting to think thoughts of Jesus, he would gladly distract us or discourage us in some way with some loved one who says, oh no, you go with that Jesus person, you're done with me. Or you lose your job. Or, you know, Valerie's pointed this out to me uh, very insightfully, and I've talked to many cultists through the years, and I often just think it's so obvious that the Bible doesn't teach what you teach. Why don't you repent? And Valerie points out, well, true, but if, if they were to repent, they would lose their family, they'd lose their friends, they'd lose their entire social network because they would be walking away from that cult. Well, so Satan would gladly discourage us or distract us. The world will want to delude us and steal it from us. So he hides it because he, he's determined nothing, nobody's going to get this from him. He's going to make it his, whatever it takes. Nobody else is taking it. So what is the sacrifice? Jesus paints it out. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Two more, three more verses to look at and we're done. Matthew chapter 10, more passages I should say. And in speaking to the apostles going out on this mission, 
He said, verses 37 through 39, For he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, now there's, there's distractions that could stop us. He's, I'm sure he's assuming a good relationship. And think how dear a, a son or daughter is to the parents. Only parents know that. Or how dear parents are to, uh, to their children. I remember the day my father died, I felt like something essential had gone out of the universe. Just the world was not the way it was supposed to be anymore. Like, as if you go outside and you say, boy, what, something's wrong. Oh, the sun's gone. <laughs> and, and my dad was pretty huge to me. And when he died, I, I just, it, it was a huge loss. But he says, if you love parents or children more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he goes on to say, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Wow, that goes beyond son, parents, and children. On a cross, you die. And so he says that following him is a kind of life after death. To what do I die? My life outside of him. Everything that I had and was before him. You could say that I sell everything whatsoever I have when I turn and follow him. He's even more vivid in chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. 16, 24, and 25. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. I'm sorry. I need to start with 24. I'm sorry. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is part of the reason I wrote the World Tilting Gospel, because I see so many say they've converted, and then they go back. And I'm convinced that it's because they don't know what conversion means, they don't know what repentance means, they don't know how much they need Jesus or what they're doing in coming to Jesus. But this is what we're doing in coming to Jesus. We're denying ourselves. And as I always point out, it doesn't say deny himself bubblegum or beer or baseball. It's deny himself. And what does that mean? Go back to the start of the sermon. Remember what we talked about, what most people want. They just want for themselves. What I think makes me happy. What I think is right. What I think gives me peace. What I think should be in my life. That's me, 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 me. But in coming to Jesus, I deny that. And I say, you tell me what my life should be. You tell me what my purpose is. You tell me what's right and what's wrong. You tell me what's up and what's down. As long as I can love you and and be yours and walk with you. That's what that means. That's what it means to sell everything whatsoever he has. Denies himself, takes up his cross, and follow me. And lose your life for my sake. That's what that is. One more vivid depiction. What it meant for Paul. Philippians chapter 3. This is a perfect illustration of exactly what this means. Or I should say it's a vivid one. Jesus is perfect. Jesus illustration. Cross. But this is a, this is a fleshed out. This is what it was for Paul to sell all things whatsoever he had so that he might gain Christ. Look at chapter 3 of Philippians, starting with verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a right, has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He starts listing off his qualifications. Here's his resume. 
circumcised the eighth day, check, of the nation of Israel, check, of the tribe of Benjamin, check, a Hebrew of Hebrews, check, check, as to the law of Pharisee, check, 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 as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And then he comes on the pearl of great price. Then he finds the treasure in the field. And he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's That's an accounting type term. I've counted them. I have changed the valuation I put on them. It had a price tag that said $58 million. I'm replacing that with one that says 0.00. I counted as loss, I guess I should say negative million dollars for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Or as Jesus puts it, I sold everything whatsoever I had that I might have that treasure, that I might have that pearl, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Well, the word really is dung. Uh, I count it as dung. I don't count it as what's underneath an outhouse. Now, do you think longingly and, and uh, nostalgically about uh, the last time you flushed the toilet and what went down the drain? No, no, no healthy person does that. And so Paul didn't sit around moping and moaning because all the things he gave up, but he was out of his mind with joy for what he gained. He counts it as rubbish. He doesn't miss it so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. That is the precious find that is Christ. The find of a lifetime and more. Because in him we know God perfectly, fully. In him we're reconciled to God on his terms. Because in him our sins are all washed away and our consciences are cleansed so that we can serve the true and living God in truth and forever and ever. So you go back to my little diagram and this little punk, this side of the grave, it may be painful, it may be difficult, but boy, oh boy, this part. (laughs) Joy and glory is all it is. And why? Because of Jesus because of God's plan in Jesus, because the Holy Spirit bringing us to participate in Jesus, because of Jesus. So I simply close by saying, Jesus Christ is the find of a lifetime and more. Amen. Does your life, do my choices say loud and clear to anyone who's paying attention that Jesus is that to me? If the answer is no, then we need to go home, hit our knees, and get serious with God. And plead with Him to open our eyes, soften our hearts, and fill us with the love and value we should put on Jesus. Because He is the gem above all gems. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for this. Thank You for this revelation in, in Scripture and the rich revelation of Christ. And, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will move through these Scriptures and these truths we've seen 
And every child of yours here to give each of us a greater appreciation and a more burning, zealous love for Jesus, a higher value on Him, something approaching the way you see Him, the way the angels see Him, the way the saints in glory see Him. Help us to love Jesus like we should. And I would pray earnestly for those who've come in not knowing Him, for those who thought they did but now see they didn't really, and for those who knew they didn't but perhaps were not looking for Him but now see they need Him. Father, may the Spirit of God grant them to come running to Him who is ready to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through Him. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.